0: So Marcela, Cedric Price, that's that's who we're here to discuss. Can you give a background on where you were in terms of your understanding of Cedric Price before your doctoral research and where you ended up in terms of your understanding of him after your doctoral research? Hmm.
1: Um, yeah, I can maybe I should start by by telling you a little bit about how I came to to know him and not in person. Uh, but through um, through the, the the learnings, let's say that I that I got from from Juan Herreros when I was doing my final uh, thesis project in Madrid, he's a, a great fan of uh, of the work of Cedric Price, and I remember that he mentioned his work to me because I was doing something not similar but related to the to the fan palace, and um, and he. Suggested that it was a very a very good architect to look at in terms of the ways he had to consider flexibility and temporality in the built environment, which was something I was very much interested back then. I'm telling you about like um, ten years ago already, so that was in the in the early times, let's say. And, and and it all started then. And since then, I was quite fascinated by not only the kind of the approach that Cedric Price had towards these questions of temporality and flexibility, but also about um, this very uh, exciting graphic style, the ways he had to represent the, those ideas. And and it was uh, uh, something that continued um, ever um after I, you know, after I, I did some some working, I had some working experiences in Switzerland and so on. And I moved on to to study a master's at the a post-professional masters at the partlet. So I, I already used a little bit of that the, the, the Master's Day assignments to to investigate a little bit more into prices, questions of temporality. But before the PhD, I was always looking at price in the way that let's say in, in an obvious way, if you like, or in a way that literature had been portraying him as this uh, quite unique, singular uh, architect in the post-war period um, that was very much interested in the production of flexible environments um, to kind of produce improvements or social improvements in, in, the, in, in British society in this sense. The, through, through my doctoral research, where I tried... Was to precisely question um, those set of so those those preconceived uh, ideas, uh, or those ideas that were supposed to be more or less evident in his work, but that somehow, looking a little bit more in depth into his project, you you realize that he was very much interested into systems thinking, mm. which was a product of his time, and at the same time, I I would say that um, that you could hint at certain control strategies that we, he would have both in his design process and also in the way he had to theorize uh, these, these ideas of flexibility. So um, I guess through my, the, the doctoral research, I, I really was trying to understand the flexibility he was implying with this architecture through the control that he would have on, the, on, that, on that issue. And after the PhD, uh, perhaps the, the the conclusion is that indeed it, there was this flexibility uh, in both his thinking and his architecture, his built works, but um, that was always in a way preconceived uh, with a with a very deline- very finely delineated plan, and um, and that contrast is is really what I, I guess I. I came to understand a bit better after the after the PhD. So Cedric Price, yes, associated to flexibility, but uh, in a very controlled way somehow.
0: So the, you find the the image that you were given of him before, sort of in-depth diving into, a fairly accurate then.
1: Yeah. So th- that's yeah. That's what I. I I tried to, to, to convey in the, in the, in the research. So, so to, to somehow see that, you know, in the end, um, not only in the work of Price, but also in the work of other architects, there is this idea that flexibility in space uh, is produced by a certain lack of control of the architects towards the space that he or she is producing. And, and somehow, um, by looking at the particular case of Price and also Izusaki as the second case of my PhD, you come to understand that there must be those uh, systems of control, those ideas, those plans, processes, um, in order to produce something that is productive for, uh, for, the, for the users that will come to use that, that space. Um, So perhaps we can talk a little bit more about this uh, uh, later, but what seems to be interesting or or what I try to to really understand is that even though there were those systems of control implied in the architecture that was designed by by Price and by others at the time, the the systems themselves had the capacity to uh, be slightly open so that in the end the results of that space were not really anticipated or could not really be anticipated beforehand by the architect. So there is a little bit of a contradiction there and I think that's a very productive one.
0: Do you think um the characterization of him as sort of an anomalous figure within architecture discourse is accurate given that I mean you you hinted at two things there one is that you're comparing him to another architect within your another architect right within your doctoral studies but you're also seeing him almost as a product of or within the context of systems thinking, right? Is that um do you find that image of him to be accurate that that he's this lone systems thinker architect?
1: I think to some extent it is accurate because um he never really gave up on the systems thinking once systems thinking were outdated, let's say by the by the mid 1970s, systems thinkings were already kind of um uh, an old-fashioned way of looking at uh, at architecture because of different different reasons the, also the, the 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 progress into a most more postmodern attitudes in, in architecture and in theory and somehow price was very very regular if you like, very uh, thinking in a very similar way throughout his 30, 40 years of architectural career. So in that sense I think he he was he was singular because he believed uh, in that um, idea of building in a almost in a very um, anonymous way with very clear ideas that in the end produce him not to build that much and those ideas were continuously um, um, sort of addressed by by him um, even un, up until the, the early 2000s when he passed away, he passed away in, in 2003. So I think in that sense, he, he is a very singular uh, person, but at the same time, somehow a product of his time.
0: Is there, um with your first, so this question of control, for instance, within within the plan specifically, is there... Is there within your initial it sounds like you were introduced to him first in undergrad and then it became much more cemented in graduate school, right so is there an incremental do you remember how you thought of control and flexibility in your undergrad moments compared to compared to now
1: um, well i I would say that perhaps in in my undergrad years and more specifically for the final thesis project i was I was thinking in a much more um, innocent way, if you like, or perhaps without really understanding the the actual role that the architect had to have in order to produce a certain flexibility in
0: space. So, did you um, take the authorless approach, for instance? Sorry, did you take the authorless approach uh, in your in your undergraduate?
1: Um, I I don't think I I took the authorless approach, but I what I think I I did was not. I didn't really theorize or I, really, I didn't really reflect on the processes that I as an architect was was taking in the design of those spaces. Um, I would always, uh, I, I remember struggling with the apparent um, random decisions that I had to make in order to produce you know, a, a, a building. And in the case of the Master thesis project, it was more like an urban space, uh, an urban um, system somehow. And I was really thinking like, well, why do I have to? How can I can I decide the position of these of these elements here and there? Um, so, so I was really aware that there were a lot of things that I had to make decisions for, and um, at the same time, I was interested in this idea of producing spaces with loosely defined functions. So, um, the, the the point to which you leave certain freedom in those spaces. It, clashes somehow with the fact that you have to decide how those spaces will look like and where these spaces will be will be placed um, within a building or within an urban an urban system. So, so that's that's really the struggling that that uh, I had from um, ever since the last year of my undergraduate degree.
0: It seems this is like a, a fairly common trend, right within you know, fourth year on upwards, uh, wherever institution I, I've seen this occur, there's sort of two poles of this th- that I've observed. One is the mm-hmm. hyper-specific program, right? Where, you know, on the ground floor, this is a cafe and this is where the seats are and this is where the table is. And mm-hmm. supposedly for the 300 years lifespan of the building, that, that's always going to be a cafe, right? That kind of control embedded into it. The other extreme is this, The systems uh, and and sort of framework and superstructure uh, approach where then the end final drawings just end up being this essentially three dimensional grid where, you know, you get anomalous, ambiguous programs embedded into it, but nothing is quite, you know, everything is quite floating and we always... I remember in, in Oregon, for instance, the the question was always asked like, okay, but maybe we try one attempt at an iteration of defining these, you know, what the programs could look like, so we can actually get an elevation out of the building rather than yeah, uh, rather than a grid. So it sounds like for you, you were floating uh, towards the the superstructure and ambiguous uh, element. Um,
1: yeah, it, yeah, that's right. That uh, um, it, it went towards that towards that direction, but. Um, in, in the years after graduation, and especially when I started to, uh, studying that master's uh, program at the Bartlett, um, I was also conscious of the actual quality, spatial quality that you ought to give to, to a certain space in order to become productive and useful, even if it doesn't have a particular function attached to it. So, so in a way, those uh, more or less um, uh, anonymous uh, greeds or undefined greets, um and that that you know that comes more or less naturally with the systems thinking were also not not valid or you know had to be had to be questioned so um um I guess you know one one of the things that really in a way helped me understand that perhaps there is a middle ground between those systems thinking and something that is absolutely defined and has a special quality. Um, was was this um, this master um, in spatial design, as it was called, um, spatial design, architecture, and cities, which basically consisted in analyzing the ways uh, spaces are used by people. Um, in using certain methods, um, and particularly this uh, space syntax methodology that you probably have heard of, um, yeah, you would analyze. Right. Yeah, here we right, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So initiated by Bill Hillier, and now uh, has become even there is a spin-off of this uh, of this um, of what it started as a lab in at the university. Now there is a company as well, and and the idea was to really understand the spatial qualities of both buildings and cities by looking at the way spaces are connected with each other. So in a more or less objective way, you would understand how and why. People move um, in a certain way or with certain patterns within the city or with buildings while spaces are more segregated, others are more integrated, and so on. And I think that analytical perspective really helped me to maybe to further understand spaces as both being potentially flexible, but at the same time imprinting a certain spatial quality on them.
0: Yeah, my I think my first introduction to space syntax was actually through a critique of it Through the fellow who founded, his name always avoids me, uh, or evades me rather, the um, Sensible City Lab. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were, I guess there's a series of publications the person had done specifically in regard to space syntax where it shows the, I guess the fun with these kind of um, systemic analytical approaches is when you push it to their extremes. Um, and see if they begin to uh, predict things accurately, or they begin to fall apart. So I, I remember one <clears throat> one specific model, for instance, was they were they were showing how if the blocks of a city were all rotated one degree off from one another, it became a very intricate fabric according to space syntax. But then if you rotated one degree more, mm-hmm. then it became a completely different kind of fabric. And they were saying that, you know, that one degree rotation shouldn't create that big of a, a different analytical result.
1: Absolutely. And I, yeah, and I absolutely agree that I think space syntax is, has, has a, a very an extremely interesting and rich theoretical um, foundations and mm-hmm. Villiers and Hansen's uh, social logic of space is an incredible book, uh, very complex uh, but incredibly interesting. But uh, but that's true. The the tool um, is, is is easy to somehow adapt the tool so that you would get the results you, yeah. you want to see. Um, and and um, in a way. Um, you know, by the end of that those uh, masters uh, studies, I I was kind of questioning the, the validity of this as well and the, the final the, the thesis that the master was was somehow a critique uh, to the methodology itself because I, I took the Rolex the Rolex Learning Center by Sena in, in Switzerland and then in order to analyze the, the ways in which this kind of continuous space is used um, by 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 users and and it was a bit of a contradiction because it was a three dimensional space so space syntax is not really prepared to analyze these this kind of landscape and environments so there was a clash in the in the in the methodology um, to, to really understand you know spaces that were more or less complex also the fact that it was a continuous space um, was let's say difficult for the tool to
0: so yeah the interesting one for me too is to put it in the context of for instance uh, christopher alexander's pattern language i think uh, he, from my knowledge he's one of the few architect researchers scholars practitioners whatever the word would be or urbanists that actually had an impact on on computation architecture like it beyond uh, beyond the the discipline of architecture and urbanism and more into sort of computer architecture a software architecture mm-hmm. and the interesting thing about alexander is that he actually had an approach that was almost a mixed method mm-hmm. where it wasn't this purely quantitative distillation of the city but had sort of qualitative and quantitative components in terms of how they analyzed patterns and how they you know derived and distilled patterns down to their fundaments mm-hmm. um the question i had so y- you've been uh all over Europe to, well, more over Europe than I have, which isn't saying much, I suppose, but the um, not saying much on my behalf, I'm not, I know you've been in the UK, I know you've been in Spain and, and Switzerland, I don't know uh, much else beyond that. But in terms of the impacts of Cedric Price, how it seems like he's quite widely understood within the UK, you know, because it's his sort of home country, right? <clears throat> but across Europe, how, how deep do you see his, how, how deep do you see an impact he has on the discourse?
1: Hmm. Well, I would say that France would perhaps be the second country uh, to consider uh, after the UK in terms of crisis influence. I mean, obviously, the, the the presence of the Pompidou Center in in Paris is is something that um, owes a lot to to, to this. Um, it's a kind of a let's say a manifestation of of Price's influence on other architects in this. In this uh, case, uh, Piano and Rogers, and they uh, they acknowledge the, the the influence that the Fan palace uh, had towards towards them when when designing the the Pompidou Center, and and I think in that sense, perhaps in France or in Paris in particular, in the schools of architecture around Paris, they they are very much familiar with with his work. This said, um, also in the UK, um, I would say that again. Price's figure is, is widely known as this kind of utopian, radical post war architect of the 60s, a little bit eccentric as well. But his, his work um, beyond the Fan Palace and perhaps the Pottery thing, Belt is not really very well known, or it's not really widely known. But certainly, the, the uh, complete works that were published uh, a few years ago in 2016, if I remember well. Have probably helped to 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 spread um, his his work and his ideas, but I but yeah I, I would say that, that he still remains as someone uh, to which one would have great fascination for his ways of speaking in lectures, his ways of drawing, uh, rather than his um, actual thinking and his ideas.
0: I would say too the um so you, the homework you you gave both of us here is that article he wrote in, it seems like architectural design in mm-hmm. October of 1966, right? Called PTB, the the Pottery's Think Belt. Yeah. The interesting one I found is one just structural about how he's writing. So he has this rhythm where he writes a, sent, a sort of contention or a statement and then puts in parentheses, basically an aside that's somewhat sarcastic, somewhat... But essentially, as long as the initial statement, and I was wondering yeah. in his own lectures, is this kind of rhythm apparent and then I sort of went through a few of his lectures, and he he has a very similar way of of actually discussing things where he the one example I remember he's essentially i think he's talking in the era of thatcher and you know privatization of the public sector and so forth. <laughs> But he begins with a sort of a very concrete statement and then goes into an aside about how he almost got run over by a garbage truck because his street is a one-way street. Mm-hmm. So he only looks one direction when crossing the street. But then the the garbage truck, the waste management system became privatized and the new garbage truck can only reverse mm-hmm. up that street. So... And he was saying, for some reason, the garbage truck also played jingle bells. And so he thought somebody had just left his, you know, their car radio on and he almost got, you know, run over by this this garbage truck. But the rhythm of writing mm-hmm. is actually quite uh, humane, I think, in, mm-hmm. and legible, for, which is rare for that time period. I mean, if you compare this to, you know, just the, some other readings I've been recently doing, like the works of Eisenman and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, which is really heavy to read in terms of a like a discipline specific language that emerges, mm-hmm. I found prices to be much more digestible, much more approachable. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So what's what's the context for you of this article? I, the the background for me is I think I've read um, somewhere in graduate school. I think it's uh, Bayard, Bayard's critique of the, the Pottery Think Belt. Think Belt, Pottery, Pottery Think Belt. Um, Mm-hmm. and in comparison to sort of Saarinen, a Cbs tower or something like this but I haven't read too much about the uh, the project itself I think tangentially i encountered this article during phd mm-hmm. but so what does what's the the meat of this article for you
1: well um, I would say, well, first of all, just to reply to, to this, um, very natural way of, of, guys communicating his ideas. I, like, you're absolutely right. So you can see a kind of a similar pattern in his text and in his lectures. And there are those hints of, of either anecdotes, uh, jokes or, you know, things that you wouldn't really expect in an academic article to, or in an academic lecture to happen. And that he, I think, intentionally makes so that uh, to, to attract the attention of uh, the reader and, and the audience. And that, that's, a, that's something very particular of, of Price. Um, and uh, he was a very good performer. Um, and, you know, uh, Peter Cook for instance, from Archigram, would say that no one but Price really deliver the lectures in the way he did and, in, you know, in a way being a little bit jealous of, of his style, right? So, so yeah and, and it, the, the, this text the life conditioning text which is the introduction to the to the potters think but is um, what the potters think but the, the text itself let's say it's um, summarizes very well some of prices main uh, attitudes or main uh, aspects main ideas towards what architecture should be and and what uh, how little architects are doing uh, with, their, with their skills, with their graphical and three-dimensional skills to produce a service for society. And the Potters Think Belt is, a, in a way, is an example of how much more productive um, architects and planners could, could be, which is, in a way, what he's claiming with the text. I would say that the, well, the foundations of the potteries is a very personal one, in the sense that Um, It takes place in a region where Price was very familiar. He was born in that region, and his family was also uh, into the potteries uh, business. So it was really directed. It didn't really affect him in the sense that he didn't didn't go bankrupt because the potteries wouldn't work anymore, and he wanted to to kind of enhance his his area because of that. But it was certainly... um, a place that he was very familiar with and he had a particular attachment to it. And, um, and if you read the article, you, you get this sense that there is a lot um, that needs to be changed in the educational system in the UK, in higher education in the UK at the time. Um, coming from Price, who was mainly associated to the Architecture Association, which is a private institution, is a little bit contradictory but you know we would find a lot of we will find a lot of contradictions in prices work and attitudes and that's perhaps one of them and and yeah what what i would say is that the pottery is in a way it's a, it's really a great example because it it encompasses a lot of what price wants to achieve with his architecture so on the one hand it's a great discourse um, on the other hand, it really contains all the ingredients of flexible architecture, capsule-like um, built um, objects, and and also this um, again this anonymity in in the way he conceives even those uh, transfer areas, which would be more or less like the building-like elements of the project. And with that, with that uh, project, he ultimately wants to regenerate an area that has been left aside by the institutions by any governmental interest and so on so it, it's a it's a kind of a side area or a, or a, a you know a place that no one would really get interested in and it's that reason and it is the, because of that that I would really go into into, into working working there
0: it, there's a few things that that caught my eye one was the uh there, I actually managed to learn um what was the there's a certain type of bathhouse that he referen- referenced a pit head bath which I had never um which one sorry a pit head bath but I, I hadn't um I, I don't remember ever looking this up prior but apparently it's these baths that were were more common in sort of the continental Europe uh rather than the UK but it's for coal miners mm-hmm. I guess one of the things with coal miners is i mean it's a very taxing work so you would uh go home while covered in sort of sweat and soot and coal dust and things of this sort and so you're sweaty and covered in this very toxic element um and i guess it would lead to a series of of health issues and then you go home and you basically try to clean off as much of this coal dust as possible in this sort of again sort of the 1920s to you know 50s era so you're not dealing with Traditional bathrooms, but it's more of a, a sort of a bin type of a tin uh, where you're bathing, and then apparently this would cause health issues in the house because all the coal dust would start floating about. So mm-hmm. they en- ended up installing these bath systems near coal collieries, I believe is the term, but coal mines. um So the workers, right after work, would be able to take a shower. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful little bathhouses, by the way. I was looking at their their pictures, but they have it seemed to have a corollary to even the aesthetics that that prices is, is framing but that's a tangent mm-hmm. so the the interesting stuff for me is the if i put him in context he, he seems to be writing in this time where the um, it's sort of post it's after the modernist project where you know people are holding form and societal functions very firmly and trying to push them forward it's sort of after that thing has been abandoned by a substantial portion of architecture mm-hmm. And people are now engaged in, let's say, much more formal considerations. Mm-hmm. Um, what he calls sort of three dimensional dexterity or something of this sort. That he he mourns that this is so um, deeply embedded within uh, within architecture. Right. Another keyword he uses sort of the hot imagery uh, in built form, which I found a, a very nice term. But so he he's, he seems to be writing in this context where he's trying to reclaim some of the lost ground from the modernist project right that he says no no we actually can hold form and societal functions and we can play a supportive role in terms of pushing and supporting certain social developments economic developments to be put forth right so in that context it's quite interesting to put him within that time frame i suppose mm-hmm. because you you almost get two divergences where one is the socially oriented socially conscious socioeconomically conscious architect in that path and where that goes mm-hmm. and then the other one is this hyperform oriented architecture which which has a different tangent in itself the interesting thing today is i suppose are those things beginning to merge In certain points across certain institutions, or is it still sort of a divergent path? Mm -hmm. I can start on a few points, but I had I had a few after your studies and after what you've you know delved into. Mm -hmm. What's your view on the notion of anonymity or the authorless or the where the author as an architect as an author takes a step back? I think I'll put this in context. So. Danish design, for instance, has a very similar principle uh, as as sort of high modernism did, right? The thought was that you're producing a universal simplified language that that is absent of cultural impositions you're going down to a pure geometric level Mm -hmm. and then producing basically the bare minimums of function plus this level of poetics that's mingling with them Mm
1: -hmm.
0: for me in, in undergrad and graduate school this made a lot of sense but what i find now is that when you actually look at the architecture of that period and when you look at danish design it's very easy to pinpoint where it's coming from—that mm-hmm. is, you can identify high modernism, and you can identify Danish design quite concretely, meaning that the the authorship and the geography of the authorship is actually quite clear. And so, in in mm-hmm. the Think Belt Potteries or the Potteries Think Belt, there are some drawings that seem to be of this nature that, that look sort of modernist, brutalist isn't the term, but sort of these clean lines and mm-hmm. very geometric shapes, almost Corbusian sort of drawings. What's your thought on that? Is it is it actually able to achieve an, a lack of authorship or is is the author actually taking a step back or is it taking a step back in an architectural way? But actually that authorship is felt quite heavily from the general public perspective hmm. what's what's your take on it
1: I, I don't think he's taking a step back in the authorship of his buildings uh, at least in the in the way I would say that perhaps he's taking a step back more in a discursive way by really giving the chance to or or proclaiming that his architecture would be able to be used at, by, by, by people the way they wanted and even be uh, able to to, to adapt over time by clients and users alike but at the same time and this is a, a conversation that I've had with, uh, with people when some people when I was doing my, my PhD he is consciously using this kind of technological or pseudo high technological style uh, for a particular reason and that is to really show that this architecture in a way can be understood as an infrastructure rather than as a piece of uh, of uh, um, it's an architecture that that is um, that is associated to a uh, to 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 someone in, in particular at the same time by using by using this apparently neutral style he's really imprinting his signature with it, especially for in those projects that ha- um, that were happening well after this kind of technological plug-in, uh style architecture was was outdated so if you take the the, pot, the sorry the Interaction Centre for instance, which is a building that was finished by nineteen seventy eight, in which postmodern trends were were already very much into play. Um, the, the the fact that he was using railway uh, railway windows, recycled railway windows and metal frame structures and plugging porta cabins was very much uh, um, the, the product of his own thinking, and his one and only uh, approach to to architecture. So I don't think um, that authorship was completely wiped out uh, from his architecture. I do think that even yeah, in his discourse, he made he he was not really um, paying much attention to his way of doing things. But at the same time, he had both a very concrete way of representing those buildings. And also a very concrete way of, of sketching, of producing, of you know, uh, um, uh, kind of uh, controlling in the end the design process that could have, that could have not been done by anyone any other artist. Mm. It was very much his own. So yeah, I I think that somehow what perhaps uh, distanced his kind of authorship from other from others um, more obvious ones is that. This kind of architecture, because it was in a way more infrastructural, it could be understood as as a, as, a, as an object that that could be appropriated by by users by by people not necessarily related with the architectural profession. So it felt like something that was more flexible, even from the physical, from its physical, from its image. That's something that um, I was I was also trying to to. To convey in the conclusions as one of the conclusions of my of my PhD, that it's not really the actual flexibility of the structure what makes it flexible, but rather the image that this building would have uh, that would really imply that could be um, transformed over time. Whether it was transformed
0: or not. Do you think it's valid?
1: I think to a certain extent, one may. Feel a little bit more, um, let's say, autonomous in these kind of spaces. Uh, if you look at the interaction center in the 19, uh, late 1970s, early 80s, and see that people were using that space in a in very, in very in various ways, and you know, it also served as a main infrastructure to regenerate the whole neighborhood. It that in that case, for instance, it was. It was valid. Um, what it is not valid, let's say, is in the attempt for that building to evolve and to change over time. But then maybe there is the question whether that was needed at all. Not only in the case of the interaction center, but maybe in 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 um, in other structures that he and other architects were planning. So this, I guess, leads us to a different discussion, which is the the question of whether this kind of physical flexibility uh, makes sense at all in in architecture. Or it is rather the production of, of spaces that, even though they are fixed, can be used for different purposes and over time. Uh, what 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 should be the way the way to go? Totally, perhaps the most a more sustainable way to do.
0: Do you know this project in um I think it's in London also, Walter's Way. So it's Walter Siegel. Hmm. Have you heard of it? Um, it, it's sort of this very fringe project.
1: Yeah, I am. I'm- I'm not very, very familiar with his work, but I, I know he was really more into building those yeah. structures with actual people, like really teaching in a way how how they could be built by non architects, right?
0: Yeah. So this is this is the one question I always have with regards to the flexibility, modularity, you know, malleability approach. That you know, with Price's way of drawing, you, you see that metabolist you know brutalist kind of language embedded into it which i think there's there's two questions that that come to mind for me one is is there a disjunction between how architects think of a neutral background upon which you can behave flexibly compared to how the public views that neutral background upon which they can behave flexibly meaning Like for an architect, taking a step back and then or creating a field in which people can play Mm -hmm. oftentimes takes a very specific type of language, which tends to be this architectural language that's stripped of details and and has almost a modernist kind of modern lines to it, let's say. Mm -hmm. And and I find that the more and more I talk to sort of normal, you know, not I was about to say normal people, non-architecture folks is that that kind no, of normal no, no yes. <laughs> yeah 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 maybe that's accurate that when you talk to them it, that kind of system that kind of aesthetic is actually the thing that sets them at most unease mm-hmm. it, meaning that it feels like this thing that they don't want to interact with at all and if they do they don't know they don't know how to do it that's that's one sort of sector that uh, sector of thinking that comes out of it which when i see the work of price it fits within that vein of okay, let's create a backdrop upon which people can play, but there seems to be a disjunction about what we think the nature of that backdrop should be that that can actually support play aesthetically. <clears throat> the other side of it is um, Walter's way, for instance, is is the thought is the project that came to mind, and there it, it it's about what my advisor in PhD, Howard Davis, he has a book called uh, The Culture of Building. Mm-hmm. And it basically is basically, long story short, his uh, his father was within the building industry in New York um, as he was growing up. So I think he was an el- electrician, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And, and so he grew up all around with these building craftsmen, these contractors and these tradesmen and so forth. And so he had a deep respect embedded within how how buildings are put together at, at that kind of level. Mm-hmm. And so with building culture, he's talking about the various layers that go into constructing a building, all the way from sort of stonemasons to wood craftsmen to plumbers to architects to contractors to developers and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the key question I, I find that distinguishes, for instance, Cedric Price's pottery stink belt compared to walter's way is something to do with building culture so for walter's way for instance he approached the background upon which people can play as something very different he had sort of very specific rules about how he would try to construct houses he said if you can cut a straight line and you can drill a straight hole that's the maximum requirement we're going to have so he physically set up grids based upon or modules more like structural rhythms is probably the better word mm-hmm. based upon what you can go down to the local sort of brico center mm-hmm. uh the hardware store and what kind of you know lengths of uh, lengths and widths of material you can get and what can you achieve with these structures without cutting those materials and just directly plugging them in and cutting straight lines and so forth Mm -hmm. so that's for me for instance walter's way from as far as i've been able to read of it had at least in the beginning a very strong liveliness in terms of people building their own houses and it seems like people did edit Mm -hmm. their houses over time because one thing is the logic of the building is set up around how people actually build. But the second thing is the materiality is something that they're not afraid to touch. Mm-hmm. Which, again, that's the, I guess maybe that's something to discuss. Is, for instance, Cedric Price's notion of infrastructure as being this background upon which people are comfortable to play do you find that valid or is that again within this um is it like an insular architectural approach that for architects it seems like the perfect neutral background but for anybody else beyond architects it actually feels quite imposing <clears>
1: hmm. <throat> um well it's difficult to 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 find out beyond the very few works that he actually built and price actually built. So that's also why I'm I'm, I'm talking about the interaction center as the as the one example in which we can test the, the, those things. Um I would I would say that Price was definitely not into do-it-yourself architecture in the sense in, in his own project. Uh, even though he would really encourage Users and clients to to transform those uh, infrastructures. We would try or tend or yeah, try to build. In the end, there was this clear uh, aim of users kind of, um, how can I say, appropriating the space without expecting them to, to to build anything additionally. So, in the in the interaction center, there are some uh, added pieces that you can find uh, some added hats that you can find in the um in those uh, in that space that were left empty uh, under uh, a space frame structure that he built uh, at the beginning of the process but but not more than that and definitely there there was not an attempt uh, in the design process by price and his uh, and his collaborators in the studio to really define how people would actually take be, be would be in charge of these of this uh, transformation of, of these additions and of these construction processes that may, could happen in the future. So he was he was giving in a way a possibility for this to happen, but he was not really um, explicitly uh, advising or saying how you do it, and it was not really on his part to um, to kind of instruct the the users and the clients, which. In a way, it comes uh, again as a bit of a of a contradiction, or as something that really clashes with his own uh, objectives for for his architecture. And this is uh, very clear when you look at the archive and you look at the interaction center project. Uh, when you when you see letters by the client really asking him to deliver that uh, method for uh, for adaptation and change of of the, of the building, which in a way uh, or apparently he promised. To deliver, mm. but he never did. So, so I think it, it, uh, you know that goes perhaps with the question of authorship. Somehow he's really imprinting his his authorship in in the infrastructures he built uh, with this more or less uh, neutral neutral language uh, on the one hand, but also on the other hand, with the expectation that um, even if they are transformed over time, they will still get. Um, the, the, the building will, will preserve this, this image um, until you know it gets to be demolished, which is another conversation with the temporality. So, so yeah, I, I in with respect to this more do-it-yourself, uh, self-built architecture, I think um, price distances are great, and and somehow has uh, as you were uh, suggesting earlier a more modernist approach to it. Um, also, to 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 answer the one of the things you were saying at the beginning of of this comment, uh, with respect to this the, the use of this framework and the neutrality of the framework as something that that was in a way uh, intimidating for for the user, perhaps in the case of the interaction center again because it's a quite a small building, I think that wasn't really the case um, because it had enough um, let's say uh, singular features. Uh, for the building not to be seen as a, as a grid and that, you know, as a neutral grid. Uh, but it's certainly one of the, I would say, more interesting criticisms towards this kind of flexible architecture. And if you are to take one particular criticism towards that, is Hermann Sertzberger's complete refusal to, to, to flexibility in the sense of the creation of these so called universal spaces. And against that, as, as you, as you know, he proposed this idea of polyvalence, which, which I would say has a, a much, a lot of potential in, in the sense that you are not really expecting, um, uh, people to understand a neutral space or, um, you know, when I say people, say everyone. And at the same time, you are accepting the role of the architect uh, as, as one that has to really design a space so that it's properly used in different ways
0: perhaps yeah i think the the question of control is this thing that keeps popping up i almost think incrementally if you again given the time period in which price is writing this it seems like it's probably a step that if he was able to take a relaxation of control even further it it would have been truly anomalous that's probably beyond what the discipline or the discourse was maybe capable of at that time i mean the if you compare that to the, the one example i always give students as well so le corbusier's uh, i think it's the red cross building i think in paris or something of the sort but it's one of the first buildings he's messing with air conditioning mm, yes
1: yes um yeah it's the
0: is it the red cross i can't remember
1: i i think it's another institution um but yeah yeah something something related to the red yeah yeah i've been there, I've been yeah, there. i
0: think it, it's sort of dealing with uh lower income folks and housing of some kind i remember but the um <laughs> so he he within his writings at the time he's talking about you know the plan as the generator and the architect takes a step back and it's just the function that's putting forward the aesthetics of the building and the formal qualities of the building and so forth but air conditioning at the time is incredibly rudimentary and so he installs the system and the airflow isn't working well enough. And so the rooms are actually getting deprived of oxygen. And some of the people sleeping in the rooms are collapsing and so forth. And the obvious uh, request, I think, from the, the building owner or the institution who commissioned it is, can we just have operable windows? Mm-hmm. Because that seemed to be an easy fix to it. And for Corbusier, the this was a a no-go area because the if you install a operable window it, you know messes with the facade and the facade was theoretically not within his control but clearly something that he had a firm grasp in terms of his authorship over and so his i don't i can't remember if it's actually implemented but the end solution that he proposes and i think it's implemented then solution is that you drill holes into the windows Uh, so you keep them you keep them fixed but you basically make them porous so if you compare that to you know what cedric price is writing about it's obviously a huge shift in terms of yes you know relaxation of authorship but then if you compare that to for instance the work of Hundertwasser or even you know to put a more relevant or or sort of well-known example cool thesis Mm -hmm. that again deals with the center of london which is a much more relaxation of authorship Mm -hmm. where the inside is this ambiguous zone that gets built it's it's sort of in that interstitial realm and the other you know examples that come to mind are even folks like uh, jane jacobs and christopher alexander again i would say writing within similar time periods even though oftentimes they're writing about a critique of top-down imposition Mm -hmm. from expert classes even within their writings, you actually do find certain discretions that they themselves don't see. For instance, Jane Jacobs talks about how the ideal city should have short blocks, right? So short blocks improve uh, interactions and so forth. But even in her "The Death and Life of Great American Cities," there's a point at which she says New York has these really long blocks, sometimes you know, four hundred plus feet long, and then you know, two hundred feet wide that seemed to work quite well, actually, in terms of supporting diversity and this and that. Mm -hmm. And I think within the next sentence, she says, but no, no, this is just an anomaly. The ideal city should have short blocks. So even for her, who's a New Yorker, you know, sees this condition that refutes Mm -hmm. her initial argument. And rather than uh, going with it or analyzing it further, she actually falls into the very thing that she was critiquing experts for which is you know turning a blind eye to the realities of the world yeah i know alexander had something similar with mexico he had a project in mexico that was sort of a bottom-up urban master plan or something of this sort and for him you know this urbanism and architecture should always be bottom-up and embedded within the building knowledge of the community and the spatial patterns of the community Mm -hmm. but for some reason when he i guess when he went to that project he assumed he was working with a relatively blank slate condition meaning that he he couldn't acknowledge or digest the or he hadn't set up a a system or a methodological system that could actually take advantage of the knowledge in terms of building culture spatial patterns ecological patterns and so forth embedded within Mm -hmm. that community and this is again i think it's it's architecture is filled with these destructive uh critiques where we oftentimes critique folks for not having the the clarity of you know future generations <clears throat> but for prices context i mean it's it's an incredible leap forward from where modernism came comes from it's obviously has huge deficiencies when you compare it to how control and authorship and flexibility are regarded now with complex adaptive systems and so forth but in that context you you recognize him as a as a noteworthy step forward yeah what's your what's your what's your view on him in that regard and because the you're you're viewing his work not only in context of another person's work in your doctoral studies but you're also viewing his work you know a few decades later is it, it how how did you approach that method of analysis did you have to take a step back hmm. or did you um, were you able to put yourself in the context, contextual shoes, uh, easily enough? Hmm.
1: Well, I, I guess when you do a doctoral research, uh, which is historically based in a time frame, you try to to place your your brain in the, in this case, back in the 1960s, and understand why certain things were said and why certain uh, uh, attitudes towards, in this case, architecture were 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 taken. So. In a way, the, the validity, if you like, I came back to today's reality when understanding the validity of the theories and aspects and, and ideas that uh, were back then um, proposed by, by Price and by Isosaki, um, and in, in order to see whether they could be productive for today's architectural practice and theory. But in the actual research, um, I was really trying to embed myself into into the, the the culture and the context of the of the 1960s to understand, um, you know why where he he came from, where he came from, and, and and why those ideas were, um, to some extent very well regarded and accepted in the in architectural circles, but at the same time, and um, not really accomplished in reality in, in uh, just a uh, just a few a few times, and so with this respect, I I. Um, Related to what you were just saying, I would say that well, Price was first and foremost an, an architectural practitioner, he was an architect and he was interested in practice. And I think um, the few times in uh, he had to uh, he had the chance to actually take uh, his uh, ideas into completion, he was somehow inevitably in, inevitably imprinting. His, um, his authorships in these, in, these, uh, in these objects, in these buildings, that is not to say that you know um, that he had a, a wide range of other works he would be doing at the same time that uh, never really were, um, let's say, built, but because they were actually not intended to be built. And in that sense, I think that relates a little bit more to, mm. you know, to the idea of someone who is really detaching himself from this um, notion of the architectural practitioner uh, trying to impose his, his work uh, in, a physical, in a physical manner. And to put you an example, he worked for about 15 years or so for the British Rail as a consultant. And to to kind of guide um, the, the the placement, the refurbishment, and the transformations of, of, of a number of railway stations, and and that's something that first of all is not perhaps is less uh, known uh, when you look at his at his work, and and it doesn't really have his um this 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 aim of 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 becoming you know the the. The, the result of, of of an architect of an author that is imposing ideas towards towards it in a set in a certain context. And the same goes for for other for other proposals like um, the South Bank area of the River Thames in London. He was really trying to understand how this this whole part of London could be could be transformed, could be regenerated um, as you know as, a, as an area that was both very close to Central London, just divided by separated by the river, but at the same time close to to the south to the south of the of the River Thames, in which a lot of uh, say low income working class uh, environments were being um, when we were being settled up, and and again that that didn't really have an didn't really intend to have uh, an architectural uh, let's say translation. But it was more a set of potential guidelines to be taken into account by the authorities, which in the end uh, were not really followed by by you know uh, completely. But were really uh, uh, taken into account when the south when the South Bank area was ultimately uh, transformed years after price passed away. And so, so you know in that sense. I, I think it's interesting to, to understand his figure in a much more diversified way. Um, so to to see that his approach to the architectural profession had this very, has, if you like, a, a more sophisticated um, tone if you compare it with, again, with the modernist and, and with other architects of his generation.
0: Yeah, I think I've had the same reaction every time I've dived into... Um any architectural figure in depth, I I suppose part of what it goes towards is anybody who's devoted, you know, their whole life to a a devotion or or, uh, a calling. It seems like it's, it's oftentimes a figure that there's some praiseworthy components and some sort of negligent components embedded into the personality. So it's a, you know, the more you dive into them, there's a humanizing component, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is probably common sense for me. It's a, it's it's a every time i do it it's sort of a learning experience again the recent one was you know the case of eisenman for instance who i had regarded as this very heavy and imporous sort of you know steadfast defensive person Mm -hmm. and then diving into his lectures it's it's sort of the opposite humanized personality that emerged out of it Mm -hmm. the um so you, you hinted at this a bit in the beginning of what you just said that the this the way you snap back into reality was when you thought of the consequent or the current implications of what you're researching in terms of i guess contemporary discourse and practice it seems like this is a one of the big issues or big hurdles with historiographic work is that oftentimes when you uh, work within a context and research within that context it's it's frequently quite difficult to make connections to the current day in terms of pushing the discourse or the practice or the discipline forward in a, in a meaningful and significant way. What's your, Mm -hmm. what do you, what do you, um, what do you see as the path forward with regard to, I suppose, flexibility, modularity, authorship systems thing, it seems like you would be in that vein, but how do you, Mm -hmm. if it's not, how do you see the research taking significant paths in terms of today?
1: Well, the, the way I try to, to, um, somehow bring it, bring this historically um, uh, situated uh, research back to the to the present. Was by somehow um, understand um, the practices of these two architects that I looked into, um, in a, from from a detached, if you if you like from a detached uh, perspective. So without really trying not to associate those ideas with their uh, to their work in particular. But um, um, but in a way, using them um, as 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 triggers for conversations that could be useful nowadays. And the way I I, I, did, it, I did that was by basically uh, putting together a last chapter that was not really a conclusion, but was rather a a, a compilation of, of six so-called arguments, um, very much. If you like, I wouldn't say speculative because they, they were intended to be rigorous, but um, but quite theoretical in the sense that they were not really based on any archival research. It was more really it was in, it was in a way built upon the research the previous research research that I that I made for the for the PhD, and um, and and I would say that um, some of the I at least some of the attitudes or some of the ideas that I uh, in, that I highlighted were um, were oriented to notions that can be interpreted in a variety of our future languages and contexts, such as, for example, the role of agency in space and how this was, uh, for instance, undertaken, I would say, very interestingly in, in, Price's, in Price's case, but also in Isozaki, if you look at you know his ideas on of, of, of symbolism and, and and the neutrality of certain spaces as well, from a very different perspective compared to to price. Um And um, and another so that that was one that's that's one example. And another example was to. Um, to understand these, the, the technology, um, notions of technology, for instance, not, not really as tools that we can use as, you know, technological devices that could be implemented in space, but rather as a way to understand technology as a as a thinking, as a methodology. Um, as I think the, uh, especially prize was trying, trying to, to, to understand technology. So. I don't think that the position of a of a of a PhD, especially a PhD in architectural history, is to really give, uh, let's say, uh, pre- precise guidelines as to how um, a flexible building ought to be uh, today in, in 2020. But rather highlight those those aspects. And in my case, yeah, that there were those six arguments that that I think can be uh, it can fuel conversations and further thinking in in, in architectural design. When you uh, are, in, if you are interested in producing a flexible environments, um, ultimately the, the last, let's say, the, the overall conclusion of of, uh, of this um, of the study, and what I think is um, very important for an architect to bear in mind is precisely this idea of the existence of a certain double paradox in, in the design process, in the sense that you, as an architect, when thinking about the production of flexible uh, architecture, of adaptable architecture, need to produce a systems, a, a, a design process, that allows you to control how flexible and why those spaces will be. But at the same time, the second part of this, of this paradox would be the understanding that there are uh, gaps that you have to leave open in, within this process and with the built uh, uh, response, let's say to that process, so that uh, the, the 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 building or whatever you're building uh, will behave in ways you, you cannot really expect. And and this uh, this idea of the double paradox, I think, is something that that somehow has a, a, a strong potential uh, again because I think it's not really associated to to any to to any architectural language. But it's something that um, it's it's powerful when considered from a designer's point
0: of view. Hmm. Mm-hmm. The I mean that that module of lack of control is something that I, I find sort of emerged, at least in my. It, it definitely wasn't there. I think in undergrad when I f- I finished in two thousand eight or two thousand nine in grad school, it started to kick in, and then you know I guess with Elemental Teddy Cruz <clears throat> and. Mm-hmm. I mean, even you—you you see inklings of it in the past. I would still assert that Hundertwasser, for instance, is one of these folks. Mm-hmm. I—I always—I I encountered him in undergrad. Well, I guess maybe it did exist in undergrad, but he was heavily dismissed by professors that we brought him up to. But he, you know, he also had this gap of in which uh, human agency could assert and take over the authorship of the architect. Right? He said you could, mm-hmm. however far you could reach out the window, you could, you know. Exert your authorship over the facade and so forth. So it seems like there's a lineage of that. I'm quite curious where it where it ends up mm-hmm. in the future. Um, there's also some interesting. Yeah, but that,
1: but that's the thing. Um, uh, what I what I think it's it's really important to bear in mind is that the architect has an essential role. Uh, yeah. To you know to 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 play um, perhaps not really in. I think um, I I wouldn't associate it to the. To the, I mean, the authorship is, an, in a way, a consequence of that role. But what really um, needs to be or should be clear, I think, is that even though you're leaving um, gaps of possibilities and even though you're aiming to miss, as Price would say, with your own design process, um, this design process needs to be present and living total freedom uh, or total agency for a space to to be appropriated by by users is, in most of the cases, going to be difficult to 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 be a success. And, and I'm not I'm not saying that we architects are the ones that know better how people should live or anything like that. I'm just saying that it's a matter of, in the end, a collaboration between a discipline that has to be open enough uh, for to to, to accommodate. All kinds of, of uses and future uses that we cannot uh, kind of foresee, um, but it's but it's a discipline that that is that is needed for those uses for those uses and, and unforeseeable futures to happen. And I think that's that's, that's really that's really important.
0: No, I, I think that it's that. So as you were talking, I was I was sort of brainstorming about it. I guess the um, the you know the notion of the gaps. One thing that comes to mind is I think architecture, among a range of other disciplines, has been wrestling with this issue of how to navigate their expertise, right? Um, to put it forward with with merit or to take a step back. And it seems like that's always um, either we go too far back or we go too far forward. You know, there seems to be that constant negotiation. Um, but the, the notion of the gap... So to take, for instance, some of the projects from Elemental, where you have the facade that's built, and then you, you have the gap uh, where a new sort of organic architecture takes place, right? There's, In my mind, I was thinking of maybe the traditionally the way that architects would look at it is the built facade by the architect is the main facade, and then the organic one that develops is sort of the subsidiary one. <clears throat> the polar opposite way to approach it, where maybe you praise the organic too far is that you think of the architectural the archi- architect design facade as being the background one and the organic one as being the superior one or the the main one meaning that the architecture is there to support the organic thing whereas in the first model the organic thing is sort of a byproduct that you frame in a controlled manner. Mm-hmm. but what you just frame may be actually the third path sort of the middle road where you actually don't apply, you assume neither of them are sitting in a hierarchical fashion or relationship to one another, but rather they 're both facades um, they 're both you know mm-hmm. entities in themselves that have equal merit within their own context mm-hmm. and I think the other aspect is you know you talk about the use of the spaces. the other aspect that I always consider is the building cultures where it 's not only where uses that we can 't imagine can take root, but it's also building cultures that are so oftentimes detached from our own profession, there's so many building cultures that we don't access, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Based upon whatever constraints, there's a very limited palette within which architecture seems to get built. Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole wider palette with which the broader world builds with. Mm Um, so maybe it's also that kind of innovative zone right where the actual building culture leaps and, and bounds occur
1: yeah or perhaps it is that the, the, the action made by the architects in the first instance um um has to already accommodate this um this um the the building cult- culture that fits within the context in which is that that piece of architecture is being built um so you know to to kind of um also, uh, avoid um, the, the, the mistakes being done in the past uh, with, with alienating structures that have nothing to do with us, with a particular context. I think that that should be already, in a way, accommodated within this first. Um, action if you like, this first um, um, response to an architectural problem or to an architectural yeah, use, and as you say, this. Um, this this third category in which the role of the user can be accommodated is, is uh, I think, a very a very interesting one. One in which there is no need to hierar- to to, to, make, um, to set up a hierarchy between uh, what goes first and what goes second, or to make hierarchies also between the aesthetic um, uh, image of the part that is built by the architect and the one that is built by the user, but it's rather something that is accommodated within a structure that was inis- initiated by an architect, um, but that can naturally, in a way, uh, be uh, evolved and, and be used uh, um, differently over time by their users.
0: Yeah. One one last area for you, Marcella, that I want to pick your brain on and then, and then I'll let you go. The um, research... Uh, I find for architects, generally speaking, to be very difficult. Um, for myself, it was also a big leap to get into sort of a research mentality. I, I find, I, I've mentioned it to you a few times that you strike me as a much more calmer and and uh, sort of, um, I imagine I have much more ego than you and a, a much more sort of, uh, uh, um, you know, I say that. Sporadic, <laughs> right. sporadic way of approaching things than you. But for you, what was the, it, was it a steep learning curve or did you find research to be a fairly, fairly well-suited thing? I keep posing questions to you as like black and white, two polar possibilities, which I think is, is wrong anyway. But mm-hmm. what was your beginning point of research and how did that learning process go?
1: Hmm. Well, I, I would say that, first of all, the, the, the research... The, the research has been an, uh, an enormous learning process. Like I'm, I'm a different person <laughs> now after, after finishing the, the, well, finishing after those four years of PhD research that I, that I made. And, um, if, if you like, um, I, am um, I never, um, or I tried to always consider myself a practitioner, even though as I was, you know, embarked in a, in a very much discursive work for those four years, um, which is something that I, I guess helped me always associate the, uh, the work I was doing as a researcher with the actual uh, validity or uh, usefulness for architectural design uh, practice. And um, either for, for my own practice but obviously for, you know, for, for the production of knowledge in that, in, that, in that path. I think that there is the danger for, a, for an architect when embarking in this kind of, of, of research to, and, and still wanting to, to do some practice to really distance themselves too much so that in the end practice won't really make sense anymore. I guess that's only time will tell if, that, if, if that's my case. Um, but, um, but what I think ultimately uh, was absolutely uh, a, a positive thing to take from this PhD as an architect and as an architect being trained in Spain, which, as you know, is based on the polytechnic tradition and has uh, almost zero architectural history, architectural discourse um, uh, teaching, was to really be able to, to shape uh, my thoughts in ways I was, it was impossible to, I, I was impossible to do beforehand, um, for the better, and and so, and so in that in that sense, um, um, I think that um, yeah that now I I, I do have a, a, a better understanding not only of that context that I studied in particular, but also of how um, design thinking is uh, is is part of, or can be part of my practice. And and also how um, in in a way this can this can take me to different paths in the future. So none of this could happen without this this research on in this case on price. and Anisa um could have happened with any other with any, or, or with any other research.
0: And any uh, future avenues that are that are coming up with you uh, in regard to sort of where you're taking that research.
1: Well, I am. Um, I'm currently trying to to publish a, a few a few things based on, on my PhD. So that's still you know an ongoing work that I think should um, should be um, should be done before it's too late. Um, I think I'm still within the uh, uh, a reasonable time frame. I uh, I got the the PhD degree, the doctoral degree in November 2018. So about two years ago. Um. Uh, but I uh, I would like to, in a way, take this knowledge and and apply it to perhaps a slightly different topic within this notion of frameworks uh, for designing adaptable architecture, but perhaps related more, in particular, to to this idea of polyvalence, which is something that I, that I encountered uh, through we, during my research and that I, uh, for some reasons, also for matters of, of focus and scope, I. Didn't really accommodate very much, and and I would like to to further inquire into this. Perhaps so, also looking at the urban aspects of it tomorrow so oh, at a scale that was again not really accommodated in my PhD, as I was very much into the architectural building scale. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's interesting stuff. I, I always find the, the historiographic to the practical leap to be. uh a difficult one. Um, whenever I've talked to researchers about that, I haven't encountered one that tried to keep the practical in mind while also putting themselves in the context as you've done. So it seems like that's that's an interesting approach. Which it may be based on your that may be the uh, very beneficial legacy of being trained in the in the manner that you have, right in terms of undergrad and 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 beyond. Mm-hmm. Before going into PhD, it sounds like that may actually have been an anchor that that proved quite unexpectedly useful and that it tethered you to the practical world while engaging in the research mm-hmm. realm. Well, and, let's
1: see, it's a challenging one. Time, time will tell
0: yeah, yeah, what I
1: end up doing.
0: <laughs> yeah, anyway, Marcelo, thank you so much. Um, I'll let you know when thank it's uh, edited and I think mastered is the official term in terms of sound quality and all that. Um, but it should take like a week or two or so, and then I can get it up. Okay. Okay. All
1: Thank right, you. That was that was very very enjoyable. Thank yeah. you
0: very much. Thank you, Marisa. <laughs>
1: take care.
0: Bye bye. Bye bye.